Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley episode 60. So last week we changed up the intro a little bit and I had somebody else come in so we could record the introduction. Uh, so I liked it so much we're gonna do that again. So joining me here in the studio we have Kimberly Manafra. Hey Matt. So Kimberly is a science communicator and she works a lot with the engineers and the technical side here over at Ames. And you may recognize her voice. So a lot of the stories that she writes that go up on NASA.gov she's come in to also record an audio version of that for the podcast. So, but this week we have an episode with Jessica Marquez, somebody that Kimberly's worked quite a bit with. That's right. Jessica is a human systems engineer and research scientist right here at Ames in the Human Systems Integration Division. She develops a lot of tools that enable astronauts on space station, as well as training astronauts and flight controllers in the field, better plan out their workload. So she's very integral to a lot of the work we do for now, the missions now, and future missions. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, we had a lot of fun chatting with her. But before we jump into it, just as a quick reminder, we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, We've been using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Um, You can go ahead and jump on Twitter, type that in so you can send us whatever feedback you may have. But we also now have a phone number. So for those who like to do it old school, the number is 650-604-1400. We already got a couple messages coming in. So if you want to be a part of the podcast, seriously, just call in. Uh, We're listening to all of those messages, and we're trying to figure out uh, for future episodes, we'll start integrating those messages in uh, as with our future guests. Um, Don't forget, we love your feedback. Um, On a similar vein, if you could like, share, subscribe, comment, do whatever it is on your favorite podcast app or social media, that is really the best way for others to find this content. Because, you know, as I say, we are a NASA podcast But I also want to remind you that we are not the only NASA podcast. We have Houston, we have a podcast. There's also This Week at NASA that comes out every single Friday. Um, And also NASA has a master podcast called NASA Casts. What they ended up doing is taking every single podcast that NASA does and combining them into one giant RSS feed. So that's how you can find us. That's how you can talk to us. But for this week, let's hear from Jessica Marquez. How did you end up at NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? I actually grew up in Lima, Peru. Okay. And uh, I moved to the U.S. after I finished high school uh, to start undergrad. And I had always been interested in space. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know what to do in space. Um, (laughs) She just knew I was going to do something. I knew I was going to do something because I really liked it and I just didn't know what to do. And I have this really clear memory of writing my mom always says write a letter jessica <laughs> nice and um so i wrote a letter and so i wrote i remember going to the back of the library books and and finding a letter that i uh, someone i could write to about what i could do in space and really? space science and i have this really clear memory of having the letter returned back to me undelivered oh, and i was no. so disappointed and <laughs> uh and when i i started undergrad i i decided i liked i was going to try to do engineering Okay. And uh, actually, when I was an undergrad, I was fortunate enough to get an internship here at NASA Ames. Really? So you came out to the Bay Area for school? Uh, No, I was actually in the East Coast. I was in Princeton. And uh, through the NASA um, state grants, um, I got an internship with the NASA Astrobiology Academy. Oh, cool. uh, When it had just started uh, back in the 90s. 
and um, I got to stay here whole summer. I got to learn about what it's like to actually work in, in NASA, what mm -hmm. kind of things people did. It. And our Astrobiology Academy group was very diverse. We had people doing uh, space science, so yeah. investigating and learning about the universe. Um, we had people that were in engineering mm -hmm. and were doing stuff with virtual reality. Um, we had people in biology itself, like geochemistry. Yeah, And I ended up doing work with Earth Science and uh, looking at models and how we could improve the models. And and after that whole exposure uh, with the Academy, which was really great because we got to see not just Ames, we got to mm -hmm. see other centers yeah. and understand the scope of, of what it means to actually work in space, in the space world, that uh, I decided to go to grad school. Yeah. So I went to grad school and I decided to shift my uh, attention a little bit to the aeronautics, astronautics. So okay. I studied uh, mechanical engineering as an undergrad and then in grad school I went to MIT and I was very fortunate to go to the manned vehicle lab. And okay. in that lab, everything we did has to do with how humans interact with space. And so that's how I truly delved and sort of grew in my passion of understanding how people interact with space, how people interact with complex uh, aerospace systems. Yeah. Um, so having been an engineer, I never, <laughs> I, I totally shied away from, from doing anything that was related to biology. Um, but one of the first things I learned was how does the human body function in space? Yeah. Because that's very fundamental to how people might operate and work and live in space. And so I started doing that. I got really interested in how people use uh, complex automation. Okay. I started doing some work in virtual reality. Um, and this is all uh, almost 20 years ago, almost. Oh. Well, I remember like on the, on the podcast, we had Terry Fong on, like and this is earlier back in like January, and he talked a lot about those early days of doing VR and now automation stuff. Yeah. Were you working with him on, on this no, stuff? No, not or? Terry specifically, uh, but... Uh, with the groups, yeah. Uh, my lab is uh, was a, a very well-funded lab that had NASA grants. So I was very oh, cool. engaged with, with the NASA community pretty much right as soon as I started grad school. Um, so my first exposure was my internship here at Ames. And then in grad school, I started learning a lot more about this specific area. And so uh, my project for my master's thesis was really uh, looking at how we would train astronauts with using virtual reality to uh, teach them about the space station. And so full circle, I'm working uh, now back here uh, where I get to actually help develop the training systems, help yeah. develop the other systems that support the space station. Um, so it's really kind of cool to, to, to sort of see like that, that little piece of research that I started almost it, 20 it years ago. <laughs> yeah, that just, you know, that thematically just prepared me to, to the point that I've now been working here in NASA Ames almost 10 years. Oh, wow. So like, did you, while you're finishing up school, did you keep coming back and doing internships or did you always kind of have in the back of your head eventually I'm going to end up back over there um so I when I was in grad school I was fortunate enough that I had enough funding to yeah. uh stick around um school and so um I did uh, do I did have other NASA fellowships and other mm -hmm. NASA grants that supported my work um, but the first time I got to come back here was almost very much at the end of my grad life. Really? Um, yeah, because we had an opportunity to start collaborating with someone 
um, in Code TI, where Terry uh, Terry is now. Okay, and Code um, TI for folks that's uh, they they work on all the automation and robotics. Yeah, and so we started. Uh, I started coming. I came here once, and and I had still maintained all those relationships that I had uh, built when I had been an undergrad. And so I was fortunate enough uh, when I was starting to look for a job, <laughs> it actually kind of like, happened. Hey guys. <laughs> uh, and if you've ever tried to find a job, applying to, yes. on on a website is is just the first step. It's really <laughs> trying to uh, reach out to the right people that you know to have them connect you and mm-hmm. start conversations. Um, and I very quickly learned that, and I was very grateful that I had maintained those relationships. I, I affectionately refer to things as like informational interviews, where <laughs> sometimes it's like just you know being curious and talking to people about their jobs. And if you have a connection, it's like use it, start those conversations. Yeah. and even if it's not, if even if it's not going to lead anywhere, it makes you more aware mm-hmm. about what people are looking for, who to talk to, yeah. um, potentially the opportunities for other jobs that you might not have been aware of. Um, and so, when I started interviewing for jobs. <laughs> I started doing interviews for just human factors engineering because okay. that's what I'm sort of classically trained in the domain yeah. of human factors engineering, um, specifically space. But I, I was applying to a, sort of a wide range of stuff, and uh, I very quickly realized that when I was doing the interviews, I was just not passionate about anything that was not about space. Oh, that's so funny! <laughs> and so what ended up happening, I was just like, yeah, no, I'm I'm like shooting myself on the foot here every You're time like, I, I go. I can do this, but <laughs> yeah. Uh. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna change my strategy. I'm just gonna, you know, for a time period, I'm just gonna devote all my attention to getting something in the space domain. Okay. And so I was applying to only things that were space related, and then on a lark, I, I was was going to come out here to visit, um, and I uh, my mentor uh, uh, Douglas O'Hanley. I was like, hey, I'm going to be out there. Is there anybody I should talk to? Yeah. Um, he put me into contact with someone who put me into contact with someone else. <laughs> I ended up interviewing um, like spontaneously. Uh, that afternoon when I was here, uh, who with the person that basically hired me. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and uh, it was that 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 time where we where NASA was doing uh, ten healthy centers. Okay. And so that time frame um, is basically the the NASA headquarters said, "Hey, let's have all the civil servants work and support each other across the agency, regardless of where you are." Okay, so it's not like you're competing and fighting with each other for funding. Yeah. This is like. Everybody working together, one NASA, one big thing. And so there was an opportunity to really, they were looking to make sure that all the competencies were distributed well across the the NASA as a whole. And so that was just a a golden opportunity. And I was, (laughs) I explained it to people like, I was like, I put all my chips in one bucket, except this one chip that I put out here in California. Because I, I knew very few people. I had like my mentor out here, but that was about it. And, you never uh, know. You never know. Yeah, and that was the one that, you know, bared the, fruit. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so what section were you working in? What were you working on when you first came on board? So the first project that I got to work on was really interesting. It was about how would we go about making new training systems for astronauts mm-hmm. for the new Constellation program. So Constellation uh, program was focused on not just creating a new um, rocket and a new spacecraft mm-hmm. to go on the rocket, but also that it was going to go to the moon and it was going to go to Mars. So yeah. from and, and for folks listening, the Constellation eventually 
through through the joys of government bureaucracy and changing priorities, turned into basically what is now SLS, more or less. Yeah, but, and yeah. so which is uh, the space launch system. So sorry. The fir- when it first started, it it was this integrated program where yeah. we were going to do all these things under one program, and the training part of it was interesting because how do I prepare people to do all these things that I'm not quite sure when they're gonna do that, and I'm not quite sure how the system's gonna be actually created and done, uh, but yet still provide those simulators in time before you actually launch. Oh, wow. Everybody puts on the schedule when we're gonna send someone up and when we're gonna launch them on the rocket ship. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but you don't realize there's a whole other deadline that comes way before that where it's like you train them to go on the rocket ship. And if you haven't done that, guess what? Things are gonna get delayed. Yeah, and that was another surprising thing. I never knew that there were all these other roles in mission operation that mm-hmm. played a critical path. It all builds and grows. Yeah. yeah. So that gave me the opportunity to start traveling to uh, NASA Johnson Space Center a lot. So I started working with them, traveling there frequently, um, I then started to um, get involved with the Human Computer Interaction Group, and they okay. were uh, doing two types of, and they still are doing two types of, of work. Um, one of them has to do with mission data systems, okay, and the other one is planning and scheduling systems. And I wanted to work on the planning and scheduling system because that's what I'd done for my PhD. Oh, fun! Yeah, and uh, and they were making the actual planning and scheduling systems to go to Mars, to operate rovers on yeah. Mars. Um, and I was like, well, yeah, I, I want to do that. That's, <laughs> that's what I did my PhD for. Sure, as a PhD student, you didn't really realize <laughs> that this is what you're going to, you know, you'd have an opportunity to actually work on the thing being built. So um, I joined that team and uh, we got a lot of projects with ISS. We started doing planning and scheduling tools for the International Space Station. And that's where, again, I was traveling a lot more to JSC. And so everything that I've been doing in Ames has centered around how people uh, operate and manage to work and live in space. Not from the biological sense or the physiological sense, but centered around how do you work? How do you how do you bring all these complex pieces together? Mm-hmm. It's like a complicated puzzle, I suppose. And if everything doesn't fit ever so perfectly, you know. Yeah, and there's so many other moving parts. There's like the training part. There is uh, maintaining the hardware for mission mm-hmm. control. There are all the different disciplines in mission control. That's one of my favorite things to do when <laughs> I go to JSC, um, NASA Johnson Space Center. It's just Sit in mission control. It's amazing. Yeah. You sit there, and they let you, if you have permission to go inside mm-hmm. that area, you could just sit there and observe them, just look at a computer. And, and you're just like, oh, well, that's what's the big deal about just someone mm-hmm. staring at a computer? I'm like, they're staring at a computer because they're watching <laughs> a giant spaceship go around the <laughs> Earth every 90 minutes that have six people living in them. Wow. And... When you start thinking about the immensity of that yeah. and your little piece of contribution that you did for it, it's just, uh, it just blows my mind, which is, which is why I love just even just sitting there and just watching. And, and so looking at some of the stuff that you're doing now, does it still, is it still centered around like your day-to-day work today? Is it still around that stuff, around like the space station and, and, and 
keeping astronauts up there? Or? Yeah, so with all our experience doing planning and scheduling for International Space Station, we started looking a lot more at what does the astronaut need? So for the last 10, 12 years, we very much focus on the planner. The planner mm-hmm. is the person that integrates all the inputs from everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, in ISS, you have the crew is the person that executes that plan. Yeah. Um, and when you do it on Mars, um, you have the rover execute things exactly as the command send yeah. was sent, or as best as the commands can be interpreted <laughs> by the robot. Yeah. Um, in space station, is very different. You have a person. You have to give them instructions. You, you need to give them enough instructions that they know what to do without overwhelming them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, uh, imagine you, know, you get your IKEA instructions. <laughs> you're like, okay, well, I expect you to be done an hour. And you're like, like but what, well, this what is, is this first, Allen wrench? Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> it's like, this is the first time I've seen this. How am I supposed to, how, how do I make sure that like, how do I get all the parts? Where are all the parts? Yeah, um, what order do I supposed to do this? Yeah, yeah. or if I get interrupted, it's like, I don't, I, where did I leave off in the instructions? Um, so even just little simple things like that, I learned a lot about then how you work in space and, and actually do the things that astronauts are doing in space. And it's like, and the, like the astronauts are highly accomplished, like extremely smart individuals. But at the same time, you have all these different science experiments and different things, and you're asking a lot of these people, and you can't be a, a specialist in everything. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, we have the people who are building these, you know, science experiments. But at the end of the day, you have a human being on the space station that has to execute it and do it. That's oh, that, that's crazy. And so, yeah, I'd imagine like the planning, the logistics around that is just completely nuts. Yeah. So the things that we had emphasized before was how do we make sure that that all the resources are in place to do this task. Yeah. And more recently, uh, we've been focused a little more on, okay, now that you have all the resources, how do we help the astronaut do their job? Mm-hmm. Uh, like for instance, a very complex example is preparing for a spacewalk. Okay. Um, so to do a spacewalk, uh, you need to do all sorts of things to prepare the space station okay. to make sure that it's configured in a way that it's most safe for yeah. the astronaut uh, because they're going to be going out there. In case you didn't know, the, the solar arrays in the space station move because they're tracking the sun. When you have a spacewalk, I believe they're fixed. Okay. Um, so you have to do all this preparation. So once you fix the space station, the solar arrays in the space station, that means you're affecting your power, which then means you're affecting oh, yeah. all the entire payloads, all the science that's happening on the space station, and your ability to use a robotic arm or your ability to manage life support systems. And so it's, everything, everything is, wow. in, is like, okay, we have this one thing. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a spacewalk. But <laughs> it's, it's not like, that simple. There's a whole bunch of things that are coming about to prepare for that. And then you're like, okay. Well, now the astronaut has to do that. <laughs> and there's a whole other set of things that they have to prepare to do that, that specific task. And so the work that we've been doing has been focused on how do we make it easier to, even though we have extremely highly trained, highly capable astronauts on space station, how do we make their lives easier? Kind of like if you ever encountered a really poorly designed app mm-hmm. and you're like, you can't you're like, oh, I don't know how to use You're this. looking at this and like nothing yeah. makes sense. No, it's like, it's supposed to be a very, you know, a simple way to interact or interface with it. And you're like, 
why couldn't you have just done it this way and it's just been easier for me to understand and do my job? That's right. And, there, and keeping in mind that there's a lot of tech companies spending a lot of money on people who are experts in design and human psychology and, and having that consistency of where buttons go and why and how to make it make what you want to do the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. And so in space, the people that are designing all these these tools for the astronauts, we have a very limited pool of people. Mm-hmm. And so our job is to make the most efficient, effective um, set of systems that the astronauts can use effectively and easily. Oh, wow. And so we've been developing different types of, of things like, can we make their timeline tool easier to use? Can we give them a little flexibility and allow them to schedule some of their activities? They're up there. They, they should know better what, what they should do when. But maybe you can't do this particular thing because you didn't have enough power or uh, you're not supposed to do them in that order. So we don't want to make we want to make sure that we give the astronauts flexibility to do what they think is best and what they might be most effective and efficient. But at the same time, we don't want to throw away all the good work that the people in the ground have done to create a plan that meets all these different constraints that are going around. So one thing I wanted to talk about was, well, I need to do a plug for you on, on a recent, relatively recent activity we did um, called Google Expeditions, um, but also the location where that was done was in our, over at Ames, we call it the, the Mars, the Roverscape, or mm-hmm. the Roverscape, I guess that's what. Um, so uh, for those, who, for folks who are listening who aren't aware, there's an app, if you jump in, it's called like Google Expeditions, and it's kind of a, a way that teachers and students can kind of in a 360 VR type atmosphere do tours and look at things and so NASA did a whole set of these had several different people you know representing different um, centers and Jessica got to, <laughs> she was our person for Ames and it was set at the at the roverscape and you if you pull up the app and you look up for for Jessica's you look around and you can see these different points of interest. So talk a little bit about that. Why in the Roverscape? What was some of the stuff related to that? Um, So we did in the Roverscape because we wanted to uh, capture people's imagination because it's NASA, but also capture people's imagination about what exploration might be like in the future. Mm -hmm. So if you think about uh, how we send rovers and and potentially then people to Mars, um, we're going to have to be a little more autonomous and work more independently from Earth. So this is a reoccurring theme that you see in in Journey to Mars, um, the hashtag Journey to Mars. <laughs> um, as we go farther and farther away, um, we inevitably hit this impossible, yeah. uh, not impossible, but this physics constraint. <laughs> the farther we go away, the longer it takes for your message to go back and forth. Yeah, the between. light can only travel so fast. Yeah. <laughs> And so this bounds how frequently and how often you can actually talk back to Earth, um, not just because of the speed of the, the data, the communication back and forth, but also because you're going through a very tiny pipeline. You actually mm. have to depend on very limited amount of data that is going from interstellar space, because it's literally interstellar space. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not hyperbole. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> Back to Earth, and there's only a certain certain number of satellites, and and, and basically your pipeline's very small mm-hmm. to get all that data. So as we start imagining what missions to Mars might be like with people and rovers, you start to realize 
how much more independent people and rovers are going to have to be from Earth because we're just limited by physics. <laughs> um, and so the idea is that what, one of our tools, Playbook, it is a timeline tool that hopefully will help astronauts manage their own schedule more easily. And we're hoping that this will be an integral part about how they work with rovers mm -hmm. um, in future missions and deep space missions and Mars missions. And so does the playbook software, is that also related to some of the other Mars analog, I think is what we like to say, um, the, uh, other practice sessions that I know Ames has worked on either in Idaho or Hawaii? Mm -hmm. So one of the coolest things about my job is <laughs> that we have to become very clever in how we learn about traveling to Mars and deep space when we can't actually do it. Yeah. So we find all sorts of different ways of simulating um, this environment. And uh, the Earth analogs provide a really uh, great way of studying different aspects of the missions um, and different constraints that we will encounter as we do these future missions. And so Playbook has been our tool that we've been using um, and developing slowly over time. And we, we call it our next generation of planning and scheduling tools for NASA. And we have managed to uh, test this in many different types of analogs. Uh, we do it at NEMA, which is the underwater uh, mm -hmm. analog. We've done it at Basalt, which is looking at science objectives in the context of Mars exploration. Um, we have done it in HERA, which is this JSC analog where people are um, in a confined environment in isolation. Um, we are now actually also in high seas, which is this eight-month-long analog. Oh, wow. Where they put crew in isolation uh, for eight months. Oh, wow. And so yeah. we learn different things with different missions about how self-scheduling and playbook might work in these environments. Excellent. So as a throwback to folks listening to the podcast, we had an episode with Darlene Lim, who works on basalt yeah. on one of those. So for anybody who wants to get more information on that, uh, we'll throw that into the show notes so people can go back and listen to that episode. But um, awesome. And also for anybody, if you're looking for the Google expeditions, we'll throw in a link for that. If you want to check out Jessica and you can move your phone around in 360 and see <laughs> all the little points and learn more about playbook and stuff. But for folks who have anybody who has questions, for Jessica. We are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. This has been way fun. This is fascinating. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you.